Hi, I'm Kim LaPree from the Teachers Need Teachers podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with David Mileto. This actually is the end of our four-part visit with David. That's right. He was a young child in the 50s, teenager in the early 60s, college student in late 60s, early 70s, and a developing artist from then on. We have listened to David talk about everything from family stories to his thoughts about pop culture. And, uh, you know, he lived through many major historical events of the time. As a history teacher, I was always looking for a way to get the kids to understand why stories from people who lived through the time are so important to understanding the past. You know, primary sources versus secondary sources, because nobody else has interpreted his experiences. That's right. So if you haven't heard the other episodes, take the time to go back and listen to 277, 271, and 269. By the way, David just published his ebook, Images of an Idea Lost the story of his ill-fated 25-year relationship with Linda, who you hear him talk about at the end of episode 277 and during this one. You can find it at Apple Books. Just look up Images of an Idea Lost by David Mileto. Glad you're here today. Lots to learn. And if you haven't gone back and listened to the others, start there and then come back and listen to this final conclusion. And by the way, he's looking for help for his latest art project that he has going on. And maybe you have the abilities to help him. So listen for him to talk about that during this episode as well. Glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Take care. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and I'm uh, back for the last episode of my talk with uh, my Uncle David. We have, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off. Just remember that, uh, listen to the end. Um, part of this, you know, one of the things I want you to think about is he lived this time frame. All right. And when we talk about primary um, sources of information and such, this is uh, he, he uh, was a young child during the, the 50s, the mid 50s, late 50s into the early 60s. He's in his teen years and then college at the end of the 60s into uh, the uh, 70s. And uh, and so we have these events around his life and he's an artist. And also keep in mind that at the end, if you've got some expertise in some of the uh, uh, the skills that he's looking for to help him finish this uh, wonderful work he's got going on. We'd love for your, your help. And uh, you'll be able to reach out to him at dgmaletto at gmail.com. So with that being said, say hey to everybody, David. Hello. Good afternoon. All right. So we're going to pick up where we left off. So uh, it's all yours, David. Okay. Um, about my work. So when I was in school, uh, as I have previously noted. Um, it was about learning tools. I did four pieces of work. That's it. Everything else literally has been thrown out. Um, there was a wonderful sketchbook that I had. Sadly, I lost it. There was a wonderful drawing, female nude, five feet by four feet, 
which I didn't feel like crating up and shipping back to Chicago, so we, I threw it out. Um, there was a cube, uh, a plastic cube that I made um, that got destroyed, thanks a lot to my brother. <clears throat> and um, I did a series of prints called Lenad's Dance. Linda was, had a wonderful gift of being able to dance. And one day I went to her and asked her if I could photograph her um, while she did. I took those photographs, did some drawings from them, and did a series of prints. Um, there were actually three, but the important one is the Lenad's dance. There are 10 prints that are double embossment. There's no ink. Um, they're prints that you hang from the ceiling. You don't put them on the wall. And this work, I did not know it at the time, would actually lay the foundation for what was about to come. Pause, train, train wreck is about to take place. January 10th, 1972, the phone rings. It is her. And she is telling me that she is about to go marry somebody else. Don't know why but she did. So for me, it now became a question of what in God's name do I do? And for the next year and a half, there, um, I didn't have an answer at all. On a rainy March afternoon in 1973, I was in the city of Chicago, standing in front of the Museum of the Art Institute, waiting to go see a friend of my sister's who, look, who worked for the Leo Burnett Advertising Agency. If any of you have seen the TV series Mad Men, that's, it, that's the real deal thing. And it started to rain, and I went into the, into the museum. Um, I know it was a Tuesday because the Art Institute is free on Tuesdays, and since I was no longer a student, I didn't have my go through the museum free card. Um, I went in, walked around, was looking at stuff, just killing time, and came up with almost just a trivial thought of absolutely no importance of where I stood in front of this one painting, don't even remember what it was, and thought, okay, throughout history, we have used a sense of perception. And I went, okay, didn't, nothing. Went and saw my sister's friend. Um, I later was given a book that was published by Scientific America on perception. It dealt with optics, it dealt with psychology of it. You name it, it went through it, fascinating. So I started reading that. I bought some books on the way the eye and the brain works. And I also started buying, I bought a couple of, books on artists. Um, I wasn't so much interested in what they did, because I knew what they did. I wanted to see if I could hear their thinking. Um, I bought a book by about Marcel Duchamp and one on Matisse, and I bought Van Gogh's letters to Theo, to his brother, that are extraordinary. Um, and I bought uh, Vasari's um, Letters to the Artist. And one day, 
um, I realized that I needed to go exercise my eye and my brain. It was time to, so to speak, get back into the gym. Not far from where I live, there is a highway, and as you drive down the highway, there's this overpass. And I always liked the spatial relationship of it as I would drive through it. So one day I grabbed my camera, drove down there, pulled the car over to the side, got out of the car, photographed it. Came back. I have a four by eight foot board that I stuck on an easel. I would later put it on the wall. Um, and I took sheets of printing paper that I had left over that are 30 by 22, put it up on the board and took the shots and began spatially playing with it. Just see what I could do. Again, I'm just trying to exercise because it's been a long time since I've done anything. A note of import in regards to school. When I was in school, I've always said all God's children got talent and it doesn't mean a damn thing. Um, and there are probably people want to jump down my throat for that. And it's fine, but it still doesn't mean a damn thing. Um, I didn't have a voice when I was in school. I had attitude. That I had in space, but I didn't have a voice. And when I was photographing the overpass, I still didn't have a voice. And what happened is I began working with these drawings. I did 19 of them. When I did the 20th, I asked myself a question. I saw an angle and I went, okay, what would happen if I took my knife and I cut that angle and pulled it out? And I did that. And I said, okay, so what would happen if I took that slide and reprojected it back onto it? So I did that. Walked around, I looked at the thing, and I went, okay. They said, what if I take that off and what if I cast shadow on it? And I said, okay, and so I did that. I then asked myself a question that was a, that I thought might make things simpler, but instead it made things a lot more complex. I looked at this thing and said, okay, if I wanna show Steve what I'm working on, how do I do it? And I had three answers. I could bring Steve to it, put the drawing up on the board, project the slide onto it, take it off, cast a shadow on it, let him walk around and look at that. I could bring it to him and do the same thing, or I could pick up my camera and use it to document that piece. I chose door number three. So I walked around, I photographed this thing, I did three of them. Two were successful, the third one, the, I couldn't get the idea, I couldn't get it to work. No big deal. But I was stuck. Again, I still don't have a voice. What I have, what I now have, is I had found a tool. It wasn't printmaking, it wasn't painting, it was this. So it was, what do I do? When I was 13 years old, 14 years old, and was in Florence, Italy for the first time in my life, one thing that struck me was I would love to live here for a year. So I did. Linda was gone. There was nothing in front of me, and it was called 
okay. So I packed my bags and I left. When I got there, um, there was a dear friend of my sister's who had been living in Florence for probably 10 years at the time. And I got a hold of Mary Jo. She connected me with a friend of hers who happened to have a spare bedroom in his apartment. Bingo, I now have a place to lay my head. And one day, Mary Jo and I were talking, and she asked me, she said, David, I'm going to Pistoia tomorrow. Would you like to come with? I said, sure, why not? So I grabbed my camera, went over to her apartment. We got in the car, and away we went. She had some research to do on a composer in the sacristy of the church, and so she went and did that, and I just sort of strolled around. And I stopped, and I was sitting in the piazza, and I'm watching people come and go. And all of a sudden, light bulb. And I went, I got it. We leave, we're driving back, and I said, Mary Jo, do you have time to walk for me in Piazza della Signoria? And she said, what do you want to do? And I said, like now? <laughs> and she said, I'm really busy, David. She said, I don't know when I'm going to have time. Okay. I knew a lady there who was studying art history. I called Becky up, and this was not a line. I meant this. <laughs> I, she got on the phone. We started talking. I said, Becky, I said, question for you. Instead of studying art history, how would you like to make some? And she went, what? And I said, can you meet me in Piazza della Signoria? Give me a day this week. And she said, sure. So we met. She said, what do you want me to do? I had laid out sketches in my notebooks. And I said, all I want you to do, and I showed her where to walk. I said, I'm going to photo. Don't worry about me. You won't even see me. So I photographed her going one way. I photographed her another. I did five shoots. Each one had six shots. I took a shot with her not there, and then I did five as she moved through. So when I came back to Chicago um, and had my studio space to now work on this, I began working. I took the tool that I had found of project the image onto the sheet of paper and then spatially play with it. So I would take parts of the facade of a building and if it was in shadow, I might not pull it. I might pull what I, or actually, no, I would do the opposite. I might, I might take what's in shadow and I might pull it out. I might leave what is in bright light and leave it flat. But I would just sort of play with things. And I would then walk around and photograph it. I, I would do, I would, parts of it would get drawn. Parts of the areas would be cut out. And this continued to evolve. And shortly what I did is I contacted um, someone who would become a dear friend for well over 20 years before his death by the name of Harold Allen. Never called him Harold in my life. Always referred to him out of respect as Mr. Allen and will to the day I die. Um, man had without doubt the best set of eyeballs I have ever met. The way this man could see was extraordinary. And I asked him if I could show him my work as, at what I was doing. And we met at the, at the School of the Art Institute and when he got done looking at it, he looked at me and 
infamous words, especially the latter part of this. He looked at me and he said, David, you've got everything it takes to make it. All you need is drum roll, the luck. And our friendship continued to develop over the years. The work continued to evolve. In 75, an opportunity came about where I could go and meet with the director and his curators of the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I did not want to go. I did not think my work was ready at all. And I talked to Mr. Allen about it, and he said, David, you got to do it. This would be good experience for you. Um, it would be good feedback for you to see how other people react to this. He said, but Mr. Allen and I had looked at every shot I took. There was no editing at the time. And he said, you can't show them all of this stuff. You're going to turn their brain to mush. It's too much to take in. There's too much information there. He said, you're going to have to edit. And that's how the final stage of this work came about, of where I sat down with um, Becky's Walk set one. I sat down with that piece, and I went through, and I edited out the shots that I thought weren't strong. Becky's Walk set two, I did the same thing, and so on. And what I came up with is I had this carousel of, of, of slides. And I brought my slide projector. I used to refer to this little bag that I carried as my bag of tricks. Think of Felix the cat as bag of tricks. Nice. Um, and went to the Walker Art Center, uh, went into the projection booth, threw the stuff on, it got done. All four of them, director and his three curators, stood up and applauded. But there was a problem. And the problem that I had then exists to this day. And it was, okay, so how do you show this? If I walk into the museum, I walk into the room, what is it that I am going to see? And that's, that's the, the knot that I haven't been able, I haven't found the sword that cuts that yet. And, but the work continued to evolve. As it evolved, one of the things that, that piqued my curiosity was, I know what the artist has learned about space over the centuries. What does the scientist, what does the physicist know about time? So I called up Northwestern University's physics department. Nobody answered, nobody there. So then for the heck of it, I called up the University of Chicago, got a hold of their physics department, and there was only one person there, and it was the head of the department, Professor, Professor, Professor Helmut Fritchie. And I told him my story. I said, I'd like to come over. I'd like to show you the work and just get your ideas. I hear what you have to say. I said, I'm really curious, interested in what you know about this concept called time. And he said to me, sounds interesting. He said, I'm leaving town for two weeks. I will call you when I come back. I got off the phone and I went, yeah, right. Sure you will. <laughs> Teachers don't call me back. He wasn't a teacher. I did, I did, that was the part I missed. He wasn't a teacher of mine. He called back. It wasn't two. It might have been three weeks later, but he did call. And he set up a day and a time 
and I met with him and three of his grad students. And for two hours, I sat in the back of the room with my mouth shut as they played with what I did. Absolutely wonderful friendship evolved between me and the professor over the years. Um, after that meeting, um, he invited me over for dinner. And when we set that up, I went over to his, I got over to his house that night and he had invited about, I think about five people to come and see the work. And he was sitting in his chair and I walked over to him. I said, so when do you want me to show my work? And he said, this is in your honor, whenever you want. And that just sort of knocked me over with a feather kind of thing. He just said what I thought he, you know, it's, I'm dealing with, I'm the punk that was always in the principal's office. Right. This is the head of the University of Chicago physics department we're dealing with here. Um, and it was, it was very funny. There was, um, one of the pieces, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to describe this. I'll try. One of the shots there are, to, to keep this really simple, there are four, do with my hand. There are four figures. Um, think of your little finger, your ring finger and your index finger as red and your middle finger is blue. When you look at this, it appears to you that the blue is further away from you than those three red, than those three red figures. That's the way it looks, but it's false. What is actually true if you're looking at the structure, especially if you go off center, is you will see that the blue is closer to you and the reds are further away. There was a lady there who was the owner of a gallery who couldn't accept this. <laughs> and I tried to explain it to her a couple of times. And she looked at me and she said, David, if you're going to continue to be defensive, I can't help you. And I said, Marianne, I'm not being defensive. I'm just telling you how I built it. This is called, we're just talking about bricks and mortar here. <laughs> this is called the pins here, the figures, that's all this is. Is. We're not talking aesthetics. We're talking just how it was built. And she just could it, it was wonderful because I sat there and went, you're proving my point. This is great. <laughs> uh, Professor Fritchie said, David, he said, don't, don't. He, he said, David, he said, you know, are you upset? I said, no. I said, I'm not mad. I said, she just, she doesn't, she doesn't get it. Her, her brain can't, for whatever reason, she can't come to grips with, it, with what she was looking at isn't what is actual. So after that interesting evening, um, some, a few months went by and I talked to Professor Fritchie and I, and I told him, I said, I've written to Dr. Robert Wilson, who is the director of the Fermi Lab. Um, Dr. Wilson won the, the Nobel Prize um, I forget for what it was. I know he worked with Enrico Fermi on the splitting of the atom, I believe, when he was a young guy. And um, professor asked me, he said, have you heard from him? And I said, not yet. And he said, let me make a phone call. So he called Dr. Wilson up, and a few days later, I still have the letter um, from Dr. Wilson. And I met with him with my stuff and listened to what he had to say, took all of this in. 
when I came back, I called Mr. Allen up and told him, Mr. Allen knew Dr. Wilson. And I told Mr. Allen, I said, what I find fascinating is these people with have these extraordinary imaginations don't flaunt it. There is almost a humility about them. And as we talked, I told him what Dr. Wilson had said to me about my stuff. Um, there's a small writing that I did um, about it. One of the prof one of the scientists, one of the physicists there had asked me what my philosophy was. And so I did this little writing and Dr. Wilson read it and he said to me, wow, what a beautiful idea. And um, we had talked about trying to show the work. They have a second floor like gallery at the, at the lab. And he's, and the thought was, David, do you think you could show the work here? And I said, I'll see what I can do. And I came up with a really good idea. I like the idea to this day, but I couldn't do it because the room is basically bathed in sunlight. And being like, God, I need to control light and dark. Um, and I can't, I can't turn that sunlight off. And I, I said, so that isn't going to work. I came up with another idea, of which I still have the sketch for, but their committee turned that idea down. And I remember um, Judy Roberts, uh, I think that was, that was her name, uh, one of the, the, the secretaries had said to me, she said, David, I'm really sorry. And I went, hey, I have no complaints. I came here to meet Dr. Wilson, and I've not only, I've not only met with him once, I've met with him twice. So this just would have been gravy. Um, I said, so no, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me in the slightest. Um, later on, I want to say about a month later, I met with Dr. Leon Letterman, who won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the neutrino, which is a subatomic particle. And in fact, he was my tour guide for the Fermilab. This was really cool, having a, a Nobel Prize winner taking me around the grounds of the Fermilab. Awesome. Um, and then we went back and he was, he was there with his girlfriend, Helen, who was a student of Mr. Allen's. And we looked at the work and we talked. Um, he gave me a wonderful book on symmetry. And I told him of my dilemma with the art world. I had been told early on by the head of the painting department at the School of the Art Institute that the art world would not know what to do with me, but the scientific community would love me. And so far that had to this day, that's been pretty much how it's played out. And um, Dr. Letterman had asked me to, you know, like, why? And I said, okay. I said, here's the difference that I see between what you do and the art world. Um, I said, the art world thinks they know. You're trying to understand. I said, I make oranges. They deal in apples. So they don't want anything to do with my oranges. And all of a sudden, the brilliance of Dr. Letterman says, but don't they understand that they can learn from your oranges? And I went, see, that's the way you think and the way you look at this thing called the universe. They don't. <laughs> they think that what they know is the right hand of God. And that's, and that's the problem. Um, and I remember when I left, his, when I left the house, uh, his house that night, I, would, I stopped a car at, at, at the stop sign, and I'm out in basically in the middle of just wide open country. It's me and the Fermi Lab is in my background. And I just sat there and I thought about these people who had given of their time to me and was just 
so humbled by it. Um, so the work continued to evolve. The work continued to be rejected by countless museums that, that I wrote to, of where I would meet with them and nothing would take place. I met with the director of Fort Worth, um, who was fascinated by it, but he didn't want to take the step. Because the thing that I kept seeing was I almost need somebody to put my feet to the fire, to, to almost force me, you've got to figure out, because next April 3rd, this it's showtime. So you, you better be ready, you got to figure something out. No one would do that. Um, in 1979, I went to New York. I met with uh, Barbara Haskell, who was then the curator for the Whitney. And after I saw her the next day, I saw, um, I met with Ward Jackson, wonderful man, who was the curator of the Guggenheim, who later became um, their archivist. And when I wrote to Mr. Jackson, he wrote back and said, I mean, he said, if you want to, it's your time, it's your money, but the Guggenheim doesn't have place. We, we, our wall space is limited and it's all taken and that kind of stuff. He said, but if you want to come by, I'll take the time to look at it. So I did. I never said no to anybody who said that they would take a look. So, because I usually learn more from them than they did from, <laughs> than they did from me. Um, and so when we got done, he, i never forget, he walked me to the door. Everybody was gone. The museum was closed. He walks me to the door, and we're standing at the door, and he looked at me, best compliment I've ever had. Looked at me, and he said, in the history of art, there are very few people who have had an idea and have been able to communicate it. You should feel very proud. Powerful. I That's left. Cool. <laughs> I grabbed a cab. I gave, the guy, I, I gave the guy a bigger tip than the fair. <laughs> and um, so, again, the, the work continued to go on. Mr. And I, Mr. Allen and I, one afternoon, um, I showed him what I, the new stuff, and we were talking, and, and, and all of a sudden we get, I guess for lack of a better term, an epiphany. We get an insight, and it came from him. We were talking, and he looked at me, and he said, David, he said, you know, you're not a photographer. And I went, oh, I absolutely agree with you. I am definitely not a photographer. I don't think like one. I don't, I don't, I don't look like that. I don't look at the world they do. I don't use a camera the way they do. I said, I absolutely agree with you. And he said, but as he's looking at this one shot that, that's being projected on the wall, he said, but here's, he said, here's what I'm seeing. In the beginning, when I started making, doing the photographing, when I made that decision to use the camera to photograph this, I thought I was kind of like documenting it. What Mr. Allen now saw was the slide is not a document of the work. It is literally part of it. So when someone asks me, am I looking at the work or am I looking at a photograph of the work, the answer to the question is yes. It's both. And that's, what, that's where I sat there. There was a dear friend of mine who had been in the computer field since his 20s, where we would talk about computer stuff all the time. And I, one night, we were sitting in a bar, and I said, 
is there a software that would enable you to do the following things? And he said, no. And I said, so how do you get it? He said, well, David, first you're going to have to write the math. And I said, I'm going to have to do the what? He said, you're going to have to, he said, the underlying to all of these programs is you've got to write the math for this. Want it to do something, you're going to have to tell it how it's supposed to do that. And what was very clear as I look back, if you take the period where I was meeting with Mr. Allen, Professor Fritchie, et cetera, there was a moment, there was the moment where if the technology of today had existed then, this work would have been able to evolve to its final point so I could prove my theory. So those three elements of that original shot, the structure that gets spilled, and the shooting of that all get woven together to form a new whole. But it didn't exist then, because I had the people who would have been willing to help. In 1983, actually, let me go a year earlier. In 1982, things had gotten emotionally so difficult. Um, it was, I don't want to use the word difficult again. It was almost impossible for me to address an envelope to a museum. I mean, I could put the pen in my hand, I could have the envelope in front of me, my hand wouldn't work. And so I just had to back off and stop writing to try to meet these people and to see if I could get a yes. Because as I have told you, as I have told Steve, as I have told other people, look at your children, Look at them at the age of 20, look at them at the age of 30, and imagine all they have ever heard is the word no. You got it? Okay, now think about how you think they might feel. Now you know what I've been dealing with, because that's all that's been happening, is they just keep slamming the doors. In 83, um, in 82, later in 82, I was in Dallas, and I was talking to a friend of mine, and he had said, David, have you ever tried Waco? And I went, you've got to be kidding. And he said, no. He said, try their art. He said, try their art center. I went, okay. So I contacted them. I shortened the story. I met with the, 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 the director um, in Dallas and then later in Waco where we sat down, had lunch, and he said, okay, how long is it going to take you to set up? Do we need this? Do we need that? Bum, 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 bum. And uh, it was like, okay, when I left Waco, I went there, I photographed the city, I tried to find something that I could take what I'd been doing, but make it, but use Waco, not Piazza della Signoria. And when I got home, I happened to be, I was, I was, my father was reading the newspaper and he's sitting at the table and I'm watching him turn the pages of the newspaper. I got on the phone, I called the, the art center up, and I said, do me a favor, send me your newspaper. Because it's the one thing that is, that is definitely yours. I mean, it even says, Waco Tribune Herald. The piece got created, I contacted them, I thought this was all good to go. When I called to set up an appointment to come back down, they literally acted like they didn't know me. 
And I was talking to the woman who sent me the newspaper. And I even told her, I said, you just, you just sent, you sent me that thing. I was there. I was there with, with, with Nancy, you know, the, the lovely blonde, my God lover. And it's like, hello, remember we were in your office and it was like, um, doesn't ring a bell. And it was like, okay, you can take the hot poker out of my gut anytime you'd like. So after, after that one, um, the following year, we, I ended up in Boston where I had a meeting with the director for the Institute of Contemporary Art, who, from what he said, was absolutely enthralled with what he saw. He said, look, I'm going to be in Chicago next spring call me so we can set up a time and meet and figure this out. Got, I didn't get exactly the same thing from him, but I got, uh, oh, gee, I'm sorry, I'm too busy, I don't have time. Hmm. And that died. Um, the work continued to evolve to the year 2000. And um, as, as the work of, was evolving, um, I had just finished a drawing, um, and this was 1993, and the phone rang, and it was Linda's cousin, and Michael always used to call me and ask me if I could get him Blackhawk hockey tickets. And I said to him, before he could say a word, I mean, I heard his voice. He said, David. And I went, sorry, Michael, no hockey ticket. <laughs> and he tried to talk. And I could tell he had a lump in his throat. And I went, I said, um, who died? And he said, Linda's dying. She has two to four weeks to live. Seven weeks later, Linda died. Um, after she died, I went to Dallas to see if I could clear my head. Boy, would that didn't work. Um, but I had an idea. And the idea was to tell the story. I was talking to John and Mary Joan, the lady from whose family's from Arkansas. Um, she's a wonderful woman. <laughs> she's a wonderful woman. I can give you two cents for her dad. But she, she, she's a wonderful lady. Um, as is her husband, John, uh, it's a wonderful guy. And I sat there and I said, okay, I want to run an idea by you. I said, I want to tell the story. I said, I'm not a writer, but I'm a damn good editor. And I said, I have 200 letters. I have my writings and I've got this elephant like memory. And I said, what do you think? And they, they both said, David, wow, it sounds like a good idea. So I, for the next year, wrote the manuscript, um, which actually took me 14 years to edit. Um, it got rewritten and changed in additions to, um, and I then tried to get that published. And it was funny. Some, some people said, yeah, I told them. I said, you know, I'm so sick and tired of the rejections. And they said, well, look at it this way. It's going to be different. And I went, no, it won't. The word no is still no. I don't care how you slice it. That is true. I, I don't care who's, 
I don't care who's saying it. It's still the same. And so I did, I think I wrote to um, probably about 60 or 70 publishers um, and got a whole lot of notes. I thought it was funny. Bill Clinton's editor at Knauf thought it, found it inspirational, but said he didn't know how to, feel free to laugh like hell with this. He, he said, but how would you market this? It's so personal. Uh, Excuse me, but does anybody want to really crack up on that one? Um, I just, I just sat there and it was, I, I read his letter and it was like, okay, I'm not touching this with a 10 foot pole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm walking away on this one. Um, after, uh, after uh, about a year or so after her death, um, I began working on what became the last piece in this work that is known as La Piazza Mia. Um, it is the one piece that I cannot get my head around. It is so big um, that uh, it's, it's interesting in 1987, in 1983, I knew that nothing positive was going to happen. It was, it was just really painfully clear. And it's part of the reason why, it's not the reason why I lost Nancy J, but it's, it's part of it, uh, of where I emotionally shut down. I couldn't talk. I mean, she'd be funny. She would call and she would, she would say, David, it's, it's like an obscene phone call. All I hear is breathing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was just, and I said, yeah, sweetheart, I know, I get it. And I just, I couldn't get anything out. Um, and four years later, she, was, she had left. Uh, I had lost her. And um, um, I had the very strong feeling of calling. I was going to quit. I say, you know, I'm, I'm done. I've had this. Um, enough is enough. And interestingly enough, the following year, I began work on the piece that is in uh, its coordinate is 2CS. Without question, probably the strong, I've always said it's probably the strongest work in La Piazza Mia. Um, it is interesting for me that in recent years, I have looked back and said, so was it worth, I've asked questions like, was it worth it? Um, I have looked at this and, and looked at the life lived and went, you know, this is borderline nuts, right? <laughs> um, you're not supposed to go through your whole life just having people say no to you. Um, and luckily I've got a very strong back um, and don't mind hitting back. I mean, <laughs> you can get in my face. <laughs> you're not going to scare me off. Trust me. Um, and which is one of the things actually that Mr. Allen and I used to talk about was Linda used to have a problem with my ego. And Mr. Allen and I talked about ego. And he said, you know, one of the reasons why artists have such big egos is because they're going to get beat up so badly. He said, if you make it to the top of the ladder, he said, what you have to go through to get there, you're going to have you're going to have to be willing to fight. Um, it's not going to come with a lot of hugs and kisses. Uh, don't kid yourself. Um, and I've, I've looked at this and the one question that I looked at and, and, and very seriously said, so would it have been better if I had taken the job in Dallas in the spring of 1968? Because that's, as I said earlier, 
That's the key. I do, am willing to guess that in, with any human being, you look at your life and you can find those moments that are right. so pertinent. That one for me is there's nothing more pivotal than the decision to change my mind and not take the job. Because as soon as I did that, I end up in Daytona where I don't drown. I then, and that's why I told the story, I didn't drown. Didn't drown. Didn't drown. I then end up standing in that threshold in Wisconsin Rapids and I see her face. And in order for this work, La Piazza Mia, to exist, I have to lose her face. God didn't say, I'm going to give you both. He said, I'm going to give you one, and it isn't going to be her. You can have it. The problem that I've got is now I'm at a point where you're going to take this away from me too? Because right now this work can't be saved. When I look at things that have been said about it, forget my feeling, my thoughts on it. Who gives a damn? When you look at what others have said, whose imaginations are probably a lot bigger than mine, and I sit there and I go, this is going to be lost because of what it needs. And, and whether or not it can get it or not right now looks, looks real slim. Um, if you got a question, go ahead and throw it at me because I'm, I'm trying to think of what else I can tell you of import. No, I think, uh, um, you know, this is, this is where we, we come to, which is now to bring it into, and I, whether it's the digital animated world or whatever, so that makes it come alive so that people could experience what the, the lady who didn't get it, but did get it, but just didn't want to get it or whatever the answer to that is um, when she argues with you about uh, uh, whether the, the part is further back or further forward. The, uh, you know, it's, it's at its stage to be finished and uh you know part of what uh, we're talking about and where where we are here you lived through all this time and the different things that happened that you experienced through that life and it'd be wonderful to be able to make this um, get to that stage that you're trying to get it to and so we're kind of reaching it out was, for... it, it was... go ahead no i was gonna say it, it, it was interesting there i would be sorely remiss there if i didn't mention um an absolutely, truly great lady um, who was a dear friend of my mom's. Um, her name was Cornelia Steckel. She began the fashion department at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Uh, one of her students was Bill Blass. She came from Yugoslavia, if I remember correctly, and had to flee Nazi, had to flee the Nazis during World War II as a young woman. I think she was like a teenager. Um, I used to go to her house. I remember when I first went to see her, I brought some of my prints and it was so funny. She, she took it, she held it in her hand and she started rotating it. And I said, Miss Steckle, I said, no, you're supposed to look at it this way. And she looked at me and she said, why? She said, what, you can't look at it like this? I said, sure. She said, you look at it this way. And it was like, whoa, that's right. Okay. Um, and when this work began, I would, I would go over and I would show her the work and I went through the technical process of it and about Becky walking through the piazza and she said, okay, show me who's Becky. So I showed her the first shot and I said, see, she's I got it. She's got it. So whenever I would go see her, she would look at me and she'd say, well, okay, what did you do with my lady this time? 
<laughs> cool. And she would look and we would talk and we would talk and she would, she told me things. She would just give me wonderful advice, things in regards to, uh, um, the importance of being wanted. And wow, that one just every now and then just sticks in my throat. Um, or the one when she looked at me and she said, David, she said, as you get older, you're going to get angrier. She said, and, and it's good. And it's all going to be because of what you're going to have to go through because of what you're working on. Um, one afternoon when I was at Mr. Allen's house, this was, I think in 78, 79, somewhere around there. Um, I had just shown him the piece I, I had just recently completed and we were talking and it was like, Oh my God, I've got a solo. He looked at me, he looked at me, he looked at me and he said, David, he said, you're standing on my shoulders now. He said, all I can do is stand on the sidelines and watch and see what happens. And I went, I drove home thinking, wow, you're all, you're now on the road by yourself. Um, you can keep showing him what you're doing and he will give you his feedback, but where you go, it's like, okay. Um, when I did two CS and I brought it over, two CS was interesting for me because when I finished it, I never, I never had did, I never had done a piece this big, where I had to edit so much film out. And when I put it together, I looked at it and I went, "Oh my God, this is a piece of garbage. This is Maletto vomiting. I mean, you know, talk about vomiting at the mouth. It's like, oh no." And I went, "Okay, I need, I, I need, I need somebody." I knew the. Um, in, in my early 20s, I had applied at uh, um, the Tribune and then at the Chicago Sun-Times to see if I could get a job. And I met the head of the, their photography department. Tony Berardi was his name. Nice man. And I went, and he was at the time, I think he was at the Trib, and I brought him to CS. And, and so I sat there, and I, watched, I didn't watch the screen. I watched him looking at the screen to see if I could get instant feedback as to how he was reacting to this thing and when it was done he looked at me and he went damn that's exciting as hell and I went really and he went yeah he said can i look at it again and I went okay um and then i went and saw mr allen and i showed it to him and we're sitting there he's done with it we're done and he looks at me and he said david okay you've been at this for how long he said, this is like you've been training for the Olympics your whole life, and this is your gold medal. Um, and that's when he said, you know, with every student I've ever dealt with, he said, you know, with, with people that I've known in these feet, he said, I've never known anyone who could get so much mileage out of one idea. <laughs> um, and it was like, okay, so this isn't, this isn't a piece of garbage. <laughs> <laughs> How thankful I'm wrong. Um, and, it and it was funny because for me with that piece, it took a number of viewings for me to, to it's like, okay, I, okay, I got it. Yep. Okay. I'm seeing this. All right. I was too close. I was just too close to it. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it. I was, I was studying Italian some time back, and um, one of the fellow classmates, Millie, had talked to me about my work, and she had asked me, she said, David, so when did you decide to do this? 
And I went, uh, I didn't. And she said, what do you mean you didn't? And I went, well, okay. If somebody wants to become a doctor, whatever, somewhere in their life, they get interested in medicine or in anatomy or something, and it leads them to. I said, Dad, that's not this. I said, this is a case of where it's just simply who I am. Um, it's how I deal with the fact that I'm alive. Um, it isn't, it, it's, it's like when you decide to walk, when in 87, I thought of walking away from it, it'd be okay. So then where do you, what do you then do? Become a thief? I mean, you want to become a bank robber or what? I mean, it's, it's, um, what, what else do you do? I, there are people who have known me since I was 17, 18 years old that can't imagine me doing anything else. It's like, you want him to do what? <laughs> um, you want him to wear a suit? Really? Okay. I don't think so. Um, and it was, it's, it's, it, it, it was interesting how it came out of out of nowhere. Of of there was just I, I've looked at how this just sort of played itself out. Um, because before I left for Italy, I was stuck. Again, there was no voice. I had a tool, but I didn't have a way. But I didn't know what to do with it. And. For Mary Jo to ask me to go to Pistoia, I mean, these dominoes just started falling and that the work just starts to evolve. What, what fascinated me, with, still fascinates me with, with La Piazza Mia is how there isn't a bad piece in the punch. I mean, there should be something where you're going you're gonna to take a step back and none of them do. They continually, each, each piece continued to evolve in its thought pattern um, and, and, the way, and the way it evolved. Um, and now it's, it's kind of sad, um, kind of heartbreaking of, of looking at this. It isn't what I'm going to lose because I've never, I've never lost anything. The work has always existed in my head. I know what, I know what it looks like in my head. It's not me. This isn't about me anymore. Um, and that's, that's the, that's the part of this that I look at and just sort of go, damn, um, a lifetime of work and it ends up in that garbage <laughs> because even though you and my, and my friend Juliana, were going to take care of this stuff when I'm dead, what you essentially are going to be given if things remain as they are is a puzzle and the cover of the puzzle box is blank. You can take that cover off and you're going to see all those pieces and go, okay, what did he want to do with it? And because I don't know the way the software works, if I knew how the software works, because if I knew how the software works, I, I'd just go do it. Um, I would be able to leave sketches. That's why my objective today is more of, could I take two CS? And because the object for 2CS is built, it hasn't been rendered out. It doesn't have its textures. It doesn't, the, the, the drawings aren't done on it, but the shell, the, the structure of it is there. If that thing could get rendered out to where the object is done, then I need somebody who can teach me how to take 
those three elements and, and, and weave them together. And then I can create that. That then lets me contact museums again to see if I can find somebody interested. It also lets me leave notations for, okay, you see how I did this? I need to do that with the rest and can give clarity to what, to what the final structure would look like. But as of right now, psh. So with that being said, I got a call out to everybody who's listening. Do you know somebody who can help David get uh, this, this finished or at least take a look at it? Maybe might be able to help him figure out how to, how to make the, uh, the, uh, the art come alive or to use those uh, software programs to help him finish it in that thought. It's a, it's a life's work and he's uh, looking for someone to, to help bring it home. So uh, um, some food for thought there. You know, David, I can't thank you enough for sharing with us over these four episodes about a little bit what it was like as a, as a kid, teenage years, going into college years and sharing your personal stories as your, uh, your problems of getting told no <laughs> and uh, we're not, not fun um, part of life. And, uh, and then to, to have some of the things happen and, and that did happen there along the way. So we, we greatly appreciate you being here and uh, I can't thank you enough. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can get a copy of David's ebook, Images of an Idea Lost, for $2.99 on Apple Books. It's the story of Linda and David's ill-fated 25-year relationship. Just go to Apple Books and look up David Mileto and Images of an Idea Lost. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators podcast by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.